So Fridays really just seems to be my pre-roll moment of talking about new projects. And today's new project that I get to launch, which is something many of you have actually asked me for a very long time. And it's something that I've struggled with a lot to finally be like, should I do this? Should I not do this? And I've finally decided I'm going to do this. So here we are. Today, I am officially launching that I am starting a Patreon, which is something I didn't think I'd ever really do. I'm starting it off really simple because I don't wanna overwhelm myself or overwhelm any of you that do decide to join the Patreon, but um, just basically it's gonna be like four tiers. There's access to a private Discord server and you get priority requests on topics for future episodes. And if you move up a tier, then you're actually gonna get bonus mini episodes that are gonna go live every other Saturday. And these are gonna be topics that you submit. So it's not gonna be anything that has to be part of multi-level Mondays or the corporate casket. It could literally be anything that your heart desires. And then when you go up another level, we're gonna have monthly Zoom chats where we can all hang out and actually just kind of talk in like a little kind of bubble, little enclosed space. And this is also going to include a behind the scenes look at scripts and the research process and what goes into future and upcoming episodes. And then the final tier, which I think is really special and cute, but this one has a limited number of patrons that can be in it. This one includes everything from before, like all of them include everything else that I've talked about, but this one includes um, special letters from me and Casper. So during major holidays and during your birthday, I'm going to write you a letter and mail it to you. And I have a little ink pad that I bought that's pet safe and I'm going to stamp Casper's paw print onto it and stamp it onto that so you get a little letter signed by Casper too. So yeah, I think I talked enough. This is really awkward for me, but um, yeah, I hope this is a cool thing. I hope you guys like this. Um, I hope this is okay. And um, if you want to know more or join the Patreon, it will be in the links below. So yeah, let's get into today's episode. Cruelty-free applies to animals, but not people. So why is that? If a product claims to be cruelty-free, then that should mean no cruelty went into making it, right? But just how much abuse goes on in our products? And is the label worth anything anyway? Or is it just like the label natural? Well, let's find out. Hello, and welcome to another episode of The Corporate Casket. Today, I wanted to explore how valuable that cruelty-free label really is, just like how we've talked about natural or organic labeling in the past. What's the meaning behind this label and why doesn't it apply to people? We're going to dive right in, but first I wanted to let everyone know that as you might expect, this episode will heavily mention abuse, including animal abuse. So if you're not in the mood or the right headspace to hear that, then this is just not the episode for you today. As for everyone else, let's get into it. In 1937, a pharmaceutical company in the United States created a product known as elixir sulfanilamide used in DEG, it's a poison to humans. Yet somehow the company's chief pharmacist and chemist was not aware of this. And he just added raspberry flavoring to the drug and took to selling it with no regulation to stop him. Needless to say, it didn't end well. Over 100 people died and it seemed to be the straw that broke the camel's back. Something had to be done about the lack of safety on the market. Therefore, in 1938, the United States Food, Drug, and Cosmetic Act was signed into law, which required some safety substantiation of cosmetic products. With these new standards, cosmetic companies needed to be sure their products wouldn't cause harm to anyone, so they began testing on animals. This isn't to say that no animal experimentation had ever occurred before this point, but it wasn't really until 1938 that it became mandatory for safety's sake, at least in the US. 
A well-known example of this is the DRAES test devised in 1944, an acute ocular toxicity test. In other words, the DRAES test is to see how a product will react with eyes. Animals, mainly the albino rabbit, would have a material, whatever it may be, tested directly into one of their eyes. Anything from household products, pesticides, to weed killers, dandruff shampoos, detergents, and industrial chemicals would go through the DRAES test. Many albino rabbits bred for the lab were put to death after these maiming and painful tests. Sometimes these animals' eyelids would be held open with clips, even for days at a time to keep them from blinking away test solutions. There were skin versions of the DRAES test as well, when an animal's fur would be shaved and then several layers of skin were removed with sticky tape before technicians applied test substances. Of course, many oppose this test, which have called it out for the cruelty that it is. One New York Times article has called the data that comes from it as unreliable, since a rabbit eye will have a different response than that of people to begin with. Stephen Kaufman, vice chairman of the Medical Research Modernization Committee, said that he didn't know of any case where an ophthalmologist found Dre's data useful. He claimed that rabbits were only used because they're inexpensive, have large eyes, and are easy to handle, not because they're an appropriate model. Other sources have said that testing on animals is a necessary step when it comes to in vitro testing. One article writes, what are the alternatives? The possibilities are either to stop the development of new drugs for humans and veterinary use, or to put new drugs on the market without testing them on living animals, or to test new drugs on humans without previous testing on other animals. Few people would be prepared to accept any of these. Testing on animals in a lab remains a topic of controversy and debate. Some point to how much we've learned from animal testing in the labs and how the polio vaccine was born out of tests on monkeys and how COVID vaccines have been tested on mice and macaques. Others say we should be using lab-grown tissues and cell models. I can appreciate that many laboratories do seem to be moving in that direction, but they've resolved to test on animals as little as possible. But what about the cosmetic industry? Is it really necessary to test on animals for product safety? Well, Muriel, Lady Doubting, would argue absolutely not. She founded Beauty Without Cruelty back in 1963 after some serious campaigning in the 1950s. Back then, she tried to persuade leaders of the cosmetic industry to stop using spermaceti from whales and musk from musk deer in products, but when it failed, BWC was born. The organization first began by promoting the use of simulated furs with a button that read, read no mistake, my fur is fake. BWC was the very first movement to truly create a worldwide awareness to the cruelty of animals with fur, skin, perfume, cosmetic, and toiletry trades. By 1966, cruelty-free shopping had become more popular, but it was still confusing. Companies began designing their own bunny logos to signify they were cruelty-free, but they often did it without the participation of animal protection groups. Hence, Leaping Bunny was born. According to them, in response, eight national animal protection groups banded together to form the Coalition for Consumer Information on Cosmetics. The CCIC promotes a single comprehensive standard and an internationally recognized Leaping Bunny logo. We work with companies to help make shopping for animal-friendly products easier and more trustworthy. They work with the Animal Alliance of Canada and the American Anti-Vivisection Society, Humane Society of the United States, the Doris Day Animal League, and of course, Beauty Without Cruelty, among others. By the 70s and 80s, there was a public outrage for animal-tested products and Henry Spira, an animal activist, would run full-page newspaper ads charging popular companies like Revlon with perpetuating animal cruelty for the sake of beauty. Revlon became one of the first companies that caved into the pressure and funded a major research program to find alternatives for eye irritancy testing and Avon following suit. 
As an aside here, I do find it a bit tacky how throughout my research for the Avon episode, they insisted that they were one of the first to become cruelty-free and that they're so revolutionary because of it. And in actuality, they were just a massive brand that was being pressured to do so, but that's just my opinion. Anyway, it feels a bit weird for them to flaunt it. Eventually, the UK banned animal testing for cosmetic products and ingredients altogether in 1998 and many other countries following suit in later years. In the last two years, even China has slowly begun to move away from requiring post-market animal testing, which was one required by law. Whether because of law or because of public pressure, many cosmetic companies have adopted visible cruelty-free advertising stickers on their products. Of course, they may still use Carmine or animal byproducts unless it's a vegan brand, but hey, at least makeup has come a very long way in terms of actually testing on animals. So the long and the short of this is that cruelty-free means that this final cosmetic product hasn't been tested on animals, right? Well, we'll get into that label a bit more later, but unfortunately, even if this label says cruelty-free, that doesn't mean no cruelty goes into making it. The cruelty label, simply put, does not apply to humans. I've spoken about mica before in an older episode, so I'll try to keep this portion brief, but mica in of itself is that brittle, shiny material you see in makeup, paints, and even toothpaste. It's very often gathered by children in illegal mines. Many teenagers and children work and often die in these mines trying to feed their families. Although there aren't any official figures about this because they're illegal, one project coordinator of the child protection group says that he hears that at least 10 or sometimes 20 deaths in any given month. Some companies have begun using synthetic mica grown in labs as awareness has spread of the issue, but mica mines are still a massive problem. While being cruelty-free and protecting animals is important, having an ethically sourced product that doesn't support child labor needs to be important too. Again, I recognize this is an incredibly complicated issue and many of the people within these mica rich regions can't make a living without it. By no means is there a simple solution here. I think regulating the mines and paying workers fair wages would be a start, and it would mean that mica from these areas aren't sourced with child labor, but it's far easier said than done. Indian authorities themselves seem to be in denial about the problem and claim the local mines don't even exist. Unfortunately, plenty of suppliers are aware these mines exist and they're dangerous. They simply aren't doing anything to stop it though. Yet some of these makeup brands do claim to care about animals. Rimmel, for example, has an entire page on their website about how they care about animals and only test when required by law, like in certain places like China. But they, along with many others, don't want to disclose where their mica comes from. According to the research center Danwatch, 12 out of 16 international cosmetic companies don't disclose where their mica comes from, but seven of them support standards that include combating child labor, according to their official communication. The problem, as always, seems to come because mica is often sold to middlemen who do business with these larger companies. This gives cosmetic companies the ability to not be directly in contact with any child labor or slavery in hopes that no one will notice or that they can say they had no idea if people do. Brands that have been linked to India's mica mines include Estee Lauder, Mac, Rimmel, Bobby Brown, Clinique, Too Faced, Schwarzkopf, Intercost, Sun Cosmetics, Tesco, Asda, BMW, Vauxhall, and Audi, as mica is used to make glittery car paint. However, one of the most notable is the world's second largest cosmetics company, L'Oreal. This isn't to say that none of these brands are making changes whatsoever. I just want to stress that. However, this article came out in 2018, so it's important to recognize that this is a recent problem. This is not one that's been long forgotten or disappearing. It's also pretty disheartening that these makeup brands don't bother to see where these middlemen or suppliers are getting their products from. 
They certainly have the resources to do so, or at least attempt to retrace where their ingredients come from. As is, I still believe these brands are responsible for turning a blind eye at the very least. L'Oreal, who owns Maybelline, Lancome, Garnier, Yves Saint Laurent Beauty, Kiehl's, Urban Decay, a very well-known cruelty-free brand and more, buys Mica through intermediaries such as a German company, Merck, and Chinese company, Kunkai. These companies are known as the biggest buyers in the area and to supply the other companies listed below and regularly source unethical Mica. Merck confirmed in the article that they were aware of the use of child labor despite contractual obligations from suppliers not to employ children. The company said that further monitoring along the supply chain was very difficult, adding, especially since these areas are considered not safe. Joanna Ewart James, anti-slavery international supply chain coordinator said, it is disappointing that Merck knew about the existence of child labor, but appears to have done little to address it. This case demonstrates that contractual requirements not to use forced or child labor are insufficient and offer no guarantee that neither exist in the company's supply chain. Unless a company is ethically sourced, then they aren't really free of cruelty. The name cruelty-free feels like a misnomer and we're conflating cruelty, a broad term, with the specific act of animal testing. Unfortunately, while mica is undoubtedly one of the worst sources of child labor or exploitation in the cosmetic industry, it's definitely not all of it. There's also cocoa, like we've talked about in the episodes about Nestle, vanilla, and even shea nuts. These nuts are often used in shea butter, which you can find in a ton of beauty products that will make your skin buttery smooth. Yet those working to create it in Ghana are frequently exploited. One woman, 65-year-old Rebecca, earns about $2 selling her shea butter at the market after five days of picking, crushing, roasting, grinding, and cooking. An estimated 3 million rural women in Ghana make a meager income from selling the shea butter. Unfortunately, in these communities, women claim that the men will often drink with their profits and become abusive. This isn't to say that shea butter can never be made ethically, not at all, as it has been done within some communities. Real Raw Shea, or RRS, is a startup focusing on real attempts to invest in the women that make shea butter and focus on sustainability. However, despite the changes, it's yet another aspect of the cosmetics community that isn't really often discussed. Working conditions can be extremely poor and women working in this unregulated industry are often underpaid and yes, sometimes beaten. Other abusers are also present in Carnaba or Candelina wax suppliers, waxes that are often used in mascara. As one source explains, it's virtually impossible to really track every single producer. And with the demand of natural ingredients having gone up, companies are looking to suppliers with ESG risk. And ESG meaning environmental, social, and governance risk. After all, just because vanilla, shea nuts, copper, and silk are natural doesn't mean they don't have a whole host of issues, primarily with child labor. These wax associations have also violated working hours in Brazil and Mexico, even though Candelilla wax is often marketed as vegan and an ethical alternative to beeswax. Which by the way, that was a whole rabbit hole I went down when I was doing R&D on creating my own candle company. That wax was marketed to me originally as like a natural plant alternative that doesn't use palm oil and is, you know, good. So it's like not beeswax, so it's not an animal byproduct. And then I looked into it and it was disappointing. Sure, it might be vegan and does not involve animals, but there's a trade-off. BBC Three's Beauty Laid Bare documentary showed two reporters, Casey and Resh, watching how this wax was made. During the process, workers use sulfuric acid to separate the plant and the wax, and upsettingly, they aren't given any safety equipment whatsoever. To say this industry is unregulated feels like a complete understatement. 
Resch, who had been burned by acid years ago, said that makeup helped her feel like herself again. And there was something sick about seeing it made with this acid by workers who weren't protected from the dangers it could cause. While her story and the episode gained some traction, I rarely hear Candelilla wax mentioned when it comes to abuses within the industry. Plus the companies that are purchasing the wax are the ones giving these workers the sulfuric acid. So they care enough to give them the ingredients to make the wax, but not the safety. There's long-term health risks as well with workers claiming that not only have people been burned, but the chemicals slowly damage their lungs. As for the Carnuba wax, which is used in both the food and cosmetic industry, many issues with this ingredient were released in the documentary Mark and Check or Brand Check. And it primarily focused on the health and production of Haribo products. And according to my source, the filmmakers found Haribo was sourcing its Carnuba wax from plantations where workers earning 40 real, $12, 10 euros a day have to cut the leaves down with hooked blades tied to long poles, are forced to sleep outside or in trucks, have no access to toilets and have to drink unfiltered water straight from nearby rivers. Some of the workers are also underage. The conditions on the plantations are so poor that the Brazilian police occasionally carry out raids to free the workers. A Brazilian labor ministry official said that there had been an increasing number of complaints about the carnuba wax industry and that authorities have found many people working in conditions that could be described as slavery. The workers are treated as objects worse than animals, he said. Carnuba wax may be natural. It may leave your eyelashes voluminous and clump free according to some green living websites, but that doesn't leave it free of issues. Beeswax is also an ingredient that falls into a sort of gray area here. After all, if the beeswax is harvested carefully in a way that won't harm the bees whatsoever, then it can be marketed as cruelty-free beeswax. However, whether cruelty-free or not for the bees, beekeepers' health can be at risk due to the lack of global standards and pesticide regulation. In China and Brazil, for example, two of the leading exporters of beeswax to the United States, they use pesticides that are banned in the United States. The pesticides on these farms simply means that the bees are being exposed to them. And as a result, the wax may have those chemicals too. Brazil's pesticide use has caused physical harm to residents and usage of it near an elementary school left 30 students and staff hospitalized. But this goes far beyond beeswax, of course. But to the point is, is that the farmers and those gathering up this beeswax have their own health at risk. Those environments aren't safe and they aren't cruelty-free, but we don't really have a label protecting or defending them. And frustratingly enough, the list continues to go on. Yet another ingredient is vanilla. Many sources are quick to point out that vanilla is good for your skin and hair, but seem less to talk about the industry being sourced by child labor and poverty. Roughly 80% of the vanilla sold on the global market comes from Madagascar, and it's the second most expensive spice in the world. One woman worker, Leanne, gets six pounds a kilo for her vanilla pods, even though the industry at the time the article was published shows vanilla selling for up to 160 pounds per kilo. Lillian says she doesn't know where her crop ends up. She sells it to a collector and when it's gone, it's gone. Not only do farmers barely make a profit, but the International Labor Organization estimates about 20,000 children working in the Madagascan Vanilla Exchange with about 2 million children in total between the ages of five to 17 are engaged in some form of work on the island. Under Madagascan law, children are supposed to be in school until they're 14 and aren't allowed to work until they're 15, but these rules often are not followed. There's not only a risk that vanilla in cosmetics has come from child labor, but an increasingly high risk as well. One graph from the Maplecroft rates various cosmetic ingredients on a scale of one to 10, with zero being the most extreme and 10 being the lowest risk. Vanilla was a 4.5, just below cocoa, avocado, tin, silk, shea nuts, and magnesium. 
Yet the global demand for vanilla is so high and growing so much, soaring 500% in the past five years, that any real change within the industry doesn't seem like it's going to happen in the near future. Instead, there's only been more violence and bloodshed and theft. Quality has gone down because farmers are harvesting incredibly early because they fear thieves, cyclones have devastated the area, and the crop has been used to launder money as well. Because the thieves haven't faced justice for what they've done, farmers have taken things into their own hands. In 2018, The Guardian read, after one assault too many at the turn of the year, a crowd rounded up five alleged gangsters, dragged them into the village square, and then set about the bloody task of mob justice. They hacked and stabbed them to death with machetes and harpoons, said a vanilla farmer who was among the crowd of onlookers. I think it's good. The police did nothing. Now the gangsters will be afraid of stealing from us. We have our own guard now. The young men of the community make patrols at night. These extrajudicial killings confirmed to the Guardian by a local priest have gone unsolved and underreported intentionally until now. But environmental defenders say they highlight how the surging price of vanilla on global markets is connected to village crime and forest destruction. Yet just looking at products with vanilla extract in them will bring up well-known brands, even ones like Dionis who are Leaping Bunny certified. They have these all natural appealing and animal friendly products made with goat milk, yet these ingredients are like shea butter is in them, which we know from earlier can be incredibly exploitative. This isn't to say that this company doesn't get their shea butter from a sustainable or reputable source, but simply to point out how prevalent and necessary these ingredients are in so many cosmetics. Although they have vanilla scented products as well, I didn't actually see vanilla listed as ingredients, though vanilla is listed by the brand 100% pure, which also claims to be vegan, natural, and cruelty-free. 100% pure with that name alone, you'd think supporting them would be a good informed decision. But knowing what I know about the vanilla industry, even just the tip of the iceberg, it doesn't feel quite right to call it cruelty-free unless they can verify that sourcing. When you see that cruelty-free label, it may be natural to assume that no cruelty whatsoever, including human suffering, goes into making that product. And unfortunately, that's just not the case. Huge strides have been made against testing on animals, and I am genuinely happy for that. But we can't ignore how these natural products and companies sell them to exploit developing countries that are rich in these natural resources. Mica, waxes, shea butter, there's far more than just the ingredients listed, and some we may not even realize that are so systematically abusive. Palm oil in soaps is a whole other mess in and of itself. And though there are initiatives to change this, to bring responsible and ethical ingredients to the forefront, there is a massive lack of transparency and awareness, and it's making it all the more difficult. The cosmetic supply chain is complicated and it's something that won't just change overnight. But hey, on the plus side, we do know that we are able to make products cruelty-free for animals, so we should be able to for humans too, right? Well, unfortunately, not only does that cruelty-free sticker not speak for humans, but it might not even mean as much as you think it does when it comes to animal testing. And infuriatingly enough, PETA itself is in part to blame for this. Now, before we continue on to talk about PETA's involvement with all of this, I just wanna take a quick moment to thank today's sponsors. As we are getting closer to the holiday season, the year ending, all of that good stuff, it is becoming harder and harder to find the time to set aside to create and prepare a delicious meal. We're spending more time with family and friends and work schedules might be going crazy. I know mine is absolutely through the roof right now. So as fall becomes winter, what's better than cozying up with a comforting home-cooked meal from HelloFresh? They have got some amazing recipes all across the board. You know I cannot get over the firecracker meatballs. I never will to the day I die, but they also have some new things or 
well, they're new to me, I guess I should say, that are also really delicious. So I finally decided to try their chicken ramen in the shoyu style broth. And honestly, I thought it was gonna be terrible only because I'm so terrible at preparing stuff and it came out kind of good. And I was like really proud of myself. It was not bad for a first attempt. Like I can't wait to see it pop up again so I can try it again. But they have everything across the board, over 50 menu items and market items to choose from every single week. And it includes vegetarian, calorie smart and gourmet options. So there's plenty variety for everyone in your household. So if you wanna try HelloFresh today, make sure you go to hellofresh.com casket14 and use code casket14 for up to 14 free meals and three free gifts. That's up to 14 free meals and three free gifts at hellofresh.com casket14. Use code casket14. Today's episode is also sponsored by Stitch Fix. Style, as you know, is an incredibly personal thing. And it's important to not only have clothes that fit your style, but that also fit you and fit the moment. So I'm introducing Stitch Fix Freestyle, a shop that's built just for you. Stitch Fix Freestyle is your trusted style destination where you can discover and instantly buy curated items based on your style, likes, and lifestyle. It doesn't matter if you're looking for a brand you love or maybe you wanna try something new. At Stitch Fix Freestyle, you can shop a range of over 1000 brands personalized to your size and fit. And I have got to tell you, I was just browsing around through their app at their little freestyle section and they suddenly showed this like, this is curated for you. And it was this cute outfit that showed like a pair of pants I had already gotten in a previous Stitch Fix box. And then it showed me these boots I'd never seen before. And what I like about Stitch Fix is they create these little flat lays that show like, oh, this shirt could go with these pants, that could go with these boots, that could go with this accessory. And then it tells you what you already own too. So it's like, hey, these things all go together and it's super easy. Plus there's no subscription required and they offer free shipping, returns and exchanges. So they're really easy to work with. If something doesn't fit just quite right. So get started today by filling out your style quiz at stitchfix.com slash casket. That's stitchfix.com slash casket to try Stitch Fix Freestyle, stitchfix.com slash casket. PETA claims to care about animals. I've gone over my issues many times with them, like three or four times, and I've gotten a bit tired of their hypocrisy. However, If you see an animal test-free PETA bunny sticker on a cosmetic or household cleaning product, you may need to look just a bit closer. The Leaping Bunny certified brand doesn't mean the brand is vegan, but that a supplier monitoring the system must be put in place. With PETA, on the other hand, they don't require documents from suppliers to ensure compliance, no recommitment is required, and they allow brands to sell in stores in mainland China. They don't conduct independent audits and they don't care if the parent company tests on animals. Of course, in all fairness, this last statement is also true of Leaping Bunny certifications. Parent companies aren't held to the standard of the brand applying for the certification. Also, as a brief aside for Leaping Bunny, their cruelty-free label only applies to cosmetics. So if a product sold by a cosmetic company is a dietary supplement, that product could have been tested on animals as Leaping Bunny wouldn't certify it. Still, it just baffles me that PETA, one of the most recognized names in animal rights, doesn't actually have a trustworthy cruelty-free list. Both Ethical Elephant and Cruelty-Free Kitty, online animal advocacy sources have spoken out against this. If you look at the policies, it's pretty clear who actually cares. For example, Leaping Bunny's website reads, the standard is short for the corporate standard of compassion for animals, a voluntary pledge that cosmetic personal care and or household product companies make to clear animal testing from all stages of product development. 
The company's ingredient suppliers make the same pledge and the result is a product guaranteed to be 100% free of new animal testing. All Leaping Bunny companies must be open to independent audits and commitments are renewed on an annual basis. Whereas PETA's on the other hand says this, Company representatives interested in having their company's name added to our cruelty-free list must complete a short questionnaire and sign a statement of assurance verifying that they do not conduct, commission, or pay for any tests on animals for ingredients, formulations, or finished products, and that they pledge to not do so in the future. PETA will then add qualifying companies to our pocket-sized cruelty-free shopping guide, our shopping guide brochure, and our online searchable database of cruelty-free companies. How can PETA, in any sense of the word, be a leader in animal rights when they make it so obnoxiously easy for companies to ignore animal rights? The fact is that there is simply no regulation around the term cruelty-free. Even if a company claims they don't do animal testing, they can easily contract someone else to do it for them. Leaping Bunny themselves even recognizes this. That's why they require no animal testing be done in any phase of product development. This isn't to say that they are 100% foolproof as I'm not sure there's any way to really guarantee that, but at least as far as I can tell, a genuine effort has been made through their certification to ensure that projects they certify were not tested on animals. Whereas with PETA, you what just fill out a questionnaire and can be done with it, that just seems wrong. Unfortunately, many companies out there such as Unilever tout this certification as the gold standard and use it to imply that they're changing the world and making a difference and have done some pioneering work. Though I've mentioned Unilever in the past as well as a brief refresher, PETA has aligned themselves with this massive company, which doubles as an MLM, despite their lengthy history of abuse. Mimi Bekechi, the vice president international of programs PETA UK said, Unilever's pioneering work on non-animal approaches has been critical to the progress the world has been making towards a global ban on animal testing for cosmetics. It's only with collective action from companies, consumers, NGOs, and governments that we can drive the changes citizens want to see. It's sad that once again, we have to fight a battle that Europe's citizens thought they had already won, but with a successful European citizens initiative, we can make decision makers listen, protect the groundbreaking bans, and secure concerted action to end the suffering of animals in EU laboratories for good. PETA's massive cruelty-free list as expected doesn't mean much that this is an ethical company list, especially when you consider how little requirements are needed to get onto it in the first place. And Unilever honestly is the perfect example for this. Of course, aside from the Leaping Bunny logo or the Choose Cruelty-Free Rabbit that's based in Australia or even PETA's logo, there's yet another problem that comes in with these cruelty-free symbols. The fact that they're not regulated means that people can and do fake them. Or if a brand doesn't downright fake a cruelty-free logo, they can put the natural and other unregulated labels on it instead to make it seem like a good reputable option. Even though we might see progress, there's also been setbacks in recent years relating to animal testing too. The UK passed a groundbreaking ban in 1998 and now with new regulations, cosmetic animal testing might be allowed once again. Recent regulation called REACH, the Registration, Evaluation, Authorization, and Restriction of Chemicals, makes it so that in order to protect workers during the manufacturing process, some substances have to be tested on animals. This includes a number of cosmetic ingredients and directly contradicts the EU's animal testing ban. While some claim that this makes an absolute mockery of the country's quest to be at the cutting edge of research and innovation, others claim that the testing would only occur when absolutely necessary. It does seem like a step in the wrong direction, I'll say as much especially when Unilever has praised the decision, claiming that there have always been uncertainty about how to comply with the UK's legislation in the past. 
The UK led the way in the past, but when it came to becoming cruelty-free, seeing them potentially taking these steps backwards is disheartening, especially when there's so much work left to be done within the cosmetics industry. But with all of that being said, that's where I'm gonna wrap up today's episode. And unfortunately, I don't really have a good or clear conclusion. Sometimes, and most of the time, I like to say I can conclude with saying, we've closed this book, we closed the chapter, and we, we covered all our bases, but this is just not one of those episodes. This is still something that is a work in progress and something that I anticipate will continue to be a fight for decades to come. One of the main things I really wanted to highlight here is that one, cruelty-free does not apply to humans and that there's a lot of child, slave, and other exploitative labor that's still being just done under the scenes. And we're not talking about that and we should. And the other thing is that these cruelty-free labels aren't even as restrictive or as successful as you think they would be. There's plenty of loopholes still in them and Leaping Bunny recognizes that while PETA is just a mess as per usual. So today's episode is just more of something to think on as to where we are in the cosmetics and beauty industry because unfortunately regulations just aren't as they should be. And I don't have a good wrap up for this because it's still in progress. And like I said, will be for years to come. So thank you for spending some of your time here with me today. I hope you learned something new and I'll see you in the next one. Bye.